0: This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. What's the difference? The difference is access to these guns and especially to these AR-15s. And Dr. Kavita Patel.
1: What more do we need to do to argue that we need a National Institute on Gun Violence? Hello, and welcome to the relaunch of Words Matter. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we head into the midterms and what our leaders are saying and doing about them. We hope you like the show, and we'd love to hear your feedback as we continue to shape it moving forward. If you have any comments, feel free to send us an email at podcasts at the dsrnetwork.com. That's podcasts, plural, at the Now on with the show.
0: So today we're going to be talking about guns, and I was struck as we have a podcast on words matter, going back to the Second Amendment, which says a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state at the beginning, but too many people have ignored those words. And of course, we've had this mass shooting epidemic plaguing the country even since Uvalde, We have had almost a dozen mass shootings just in that brief period of time. Last week, President Biden spoke to the country about the epidemic of mass shootings plaguing us. In the speech, he highlighted how intractable the issue has been in Washington. After Columbine, after Sandy Hook, after Charleston, after Orlando, after Las Vegas, after Parkland, nothing has been done. This time that can't be true. This time we must actually do something. So, Kavita, Joe Biden we know has been focused on this issue for a long time. We also know that when we had a ban on assault weapons, that we did not have this kind of epidemic of mass shootings and that it has soared since the ban basically died because in the George W. Bush administration 10 years on in 2004 they refused to continue it there were 400,000 assault style weapons the AR15 being now the core example back at that point now there are 20 million in the United States and we know that we have a continuing problem getting the focus For any length of time, every time we have one of these horrible mass shootings that involves children especially, there is a national wave of disgust and horror and a desire to do something. And then, in part because Republicans and Democrats who are gun advocates stall and wait until the attention span of the public moves on to something else, nothing happens. Is this time going to be different?
1: Yeah, Norm, I hope so. I will be honest that when I finished hearing the full clip of President Biden's speech, I wasn't able to listen to it live, unfortunately. But after I finished listening to the speech in its entirety, I'll be honest, there was a part of me that said, this is it. I mean, this feels like I could have cut and pasted this and inserted it post any of the unfortunate hundreds of mass shootings we've had in 2022 alone. But then I kind of backed up and I thought to your point about at least the kind of cumulative response of which President Biden is just one. I think what's stunning is actually looking at some of the world front pages in the days following Uvalde and, you know, with given what's going on globally in our, just the pandemic, Ukraine, crises in energy, Asia, et cetera, alone you would think that our kind of mass shooting in Uvalde which is incredibly tragic but unfortunately not abnormal would not occupy front page territory but it is in a lot of countries including in in the UK and New Zealand countries Canada with the prime minister Justin Trudeau having a pretty pointed response that I frankly I wish we had had in the United States around weapons and banning assault rifles and assault weapons of that type and it was interesting for me and hopeful for me to see not just one time coverage, but kind of sustained coverage, even if it's coverage of the u s is inaction. So I do feel a bit more optimistic, and interestingly enough, as you and I scan social media, I see a lot more people being pretty vocal, whether it's every town moms demand action, or just individuals who are kind of saying that like the only reason we have to give up, even though it seems like Congress is giving up or the perception that Congress will give up, which you and I know politically, is highly likely that this time we cannot allow for Congress to give up. We cannot allow for leaders to just let time go by and move on to the next news cycle. So I am more optimistic. What troubles me, when you read the Second Amendment, it reminded me of debates that we had had in the early part of the century, 21st century, around the right to have paramilitias. You, realize, you recall, Norm, that that was what guided a number of court decisions whether or not lay individuals had the right to have these kind of military-style weapons. The need for that debate has subsided and been replaced by, should an 18-year-old have any need to purchase 17 magazines of assault ammunition? And I think so we are seeing a bit of a a difference, yet still guided by the courts with a Supreme Court decision that is going to have an incredible impact on the interpretation so for any of our listeners, uh, one of the things that I, I hope we can do, you and I, is, is to try to put back the words so that people are reminded of what, how did we get here and what is it that we need to do to, in my mind, kind of remind a public who is completely ADD, you know, because of life, myself included, like what's at stake here? So I'm optimistic that that's happening.
0: Okay. I'll be the Debbie Downer here okay. just a little bit. Um, <laughs> I will say, though, that there's a, a really good book about the first Congress by historian Fergus Bordewick. The first Congress was not one filled entirely with uh, states people like Benjamin Franklin. It did have James Madison in the house. It was a pretty motley crew, including a lot of mediocre people, but they rose to the occasion and understood that the first Congress was going to be a model for whether we were actually going to be able to have the kind of government that the Constitution had laid out. And of course, the first Congress basically took that Bill of Rights, passed it through so it could be ratified as the first 10 amendments of the Constitution. And what's interesting in the book is you see a couple of things. The first is Madison went along with the Bill of Rights, those 10 amendments. Even though he didn't think it was necessary, he thought that those were obvious. It was uh, things that you could take for granted. But he included them. And in the debates, for a lot of them, there wasn't any debate at all. But there was an extensive debate about the Second Amendment. That debate was entirely about what it meant to have a well regulated militia. And what we know is there were a couple of reasons for this. The first is, they were disbanding the army. They understood that we were going to have threats to the country, internal, remember the Whiskey Rebellion, external, and you needed to have some force that could protect the free society. And that meant a militia, we weren't going to have a standing army, but it had to be well regulated. The second is that Madison was juggling the demands of the various states, most of which wanted their own independent militias and not one that would have a national regulation. And he wanted to leave a little bit of running room there to get them to ratify, but understood what it meant. There was nothing in this conversation about individual gun ownership. And of course, if we had the framers in a time machine who could come back today and look at weapons of war designed only to kill mass numbers of people, a weapon, these assault rifles, that James Stavridis, the Admiral, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, said had no business in private hands were allowed. And if you look at the key Supreme Court decision, the Heller decision, that throughout the District of Columbia's law about people having guns in their homes, it pretty much ignored. Justice Scalia, the so-called originalist, almost wrote out of the picture what a well-regulated militia went and distorted it otherwise. So We've got that as a bit of a backdrop. But what I would say to counter the optimism, and there's a little bit of optimism. I mean, there's a real chance that we're gonna get some kind of bill through with 60 votes in the Senate. It's not gonna include a ban on any weapons. It may not even include raising the age limit to 21 for access to AR-15s and other assault rifles. But it's also, and I'll take this back to the words matter The mantra for the NRA and for others who don't want any change is the way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. In Buffalo, where we saw this mass shooting done by a white supremacist, and in Uvalde, the shooters had body armor. In Buffalo, we had a security guard, an ex-cop, who fired on that shooter but the body armor stopped it, and he was killed himself. So we're dealing with a different kind of threat. We're getting people who are in military gear with this 18-year-old had 1,675 rounds of ammunition. In Texas, they're now moving forward with a law that would allow concealed handguns for teachers. In the, the Ninth Circuit, the California law that said, Miners could not buy these assault weapons. That law, at least for now, was thrown out by two Trump judges. So we're not moving entirely in the right direction. And we better get this done quickly. If in fact, what we're seeing in the Senate is a handful of Republicans who are just going to drag out these negotiations, and then the January 6th committee will take over and inflation will be another issue. And we're past it again. We'll be back in the same disastrous place.
1: Something that emerged, as always emerges as well, in addition to, it's not bad people, you know, bad people carrying guns, it's that good people need to carry more or have the ability to exert their right to protect themselves. I can't help but reflect on Philadelphia as another. Unfortunately, we have too many examples to cite where you're exactly right, where we had situations where people were, quote, appropriately armed. In fact, per capita, Philadelphia in that region, law enforcement, just in terms of literal personnel. On that block in Philadelphia that had the the most recent larger mass shooting of more than four people, it itself had more per capita law enforcement armed than almost any area in the United States. So, this was something that obfuscates in the 94 to 2004 assault weapon ban. There have been a lot of people that have said, and quote, look, it didn't make a difference. One thing that happened kind of in that time period was the Dickey Amendment, named after Congressman Jay Dickey which basically put in a block in total on any government funding for research related to gun violence. And the language has consistently kind of been in place so that no congressional monies can go into any sort of, quote, gun violence research. There have been times after Sandy Hook and recently where it has been expanded and, a quote, unquote, CDC is allowed to do certain types of research but the amount of money that goes to it, because Congress knows not to put a lot of money to this effort, has been in the amount of about $25 million when we have a, I would argue, trillion-dollar problem from the epidemic of gun violence. So when people kind of try to you know, say, these things don't matter, these things didn't help, well, we've actually, the NRA has done an incredible job of lobbying such that they've created blind spots in our research on this exact topic But the one research, the one point that we do have that I can't help but insert is that 2020 was the first year for persons under the age of 19. So this is children, including adolescents, that violence from guns was the leading cause of death. So it overtook car accidents and crashes, which has been the typical or drownings, which had all been in the same category. So I can't help but say to add to your Debbie Downer, The few statistics we have are all pointing in the wrong direction. So maybe what we can do now is actually kind of bring up one of those red herrings, mental health that often comes up. Here's Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell at an event in London, Kentucky last week. We have a Second Amendment to the Constitution.
0: We take it seriously. There is a right to keep and bear arms in this country. So. What I've done is encourage some bipartisan discussions that are going on. In fact, I just had a a call with one of the members of it
1: to see if we can find a way forward consistent with the second amendment
0: that targets the problem. And it seems to me there are two broad categories that underscore the problem, mental illness, and school safety.
1: This is not just raised by Republicans. Here's Andrew Cuomo, then governor of New York in 2019, talking about his remedy for gun violence.
0: The Make America Safer pledge. Four elements. An assault weapon ban, high capacity magazines, universal background check, mental health database, red flag laws.
1: So as you can see, and I'll just try to do as, as we want to do in Words Matter in many cases, I just brought up a couple of uh, important facts and statistics about mental illness and mass violence. There have been a number of papers written in the public health literature around this, but I think one thing to just keep in mind is that while the mass shootings that we've been discussing, everything with Uvalde in, in Buffalo, Philadelphia that they're devastating and often get the most attention in media. They account for literally less than 1% of firearm injuries in the United States. So it's actually difficult just from a statistics perspective to use statistics in a confident and precise manner to dictate how often mental illness is the driver of these mass murders. And I think that just needs to be said because it is so frequently used, but it's literally not, we're literally talking about not just the mass shootings, but the 99% of what's happening that leads to that statistic that children are dying by gun violence. And that's just what we do know. There has been research done to line up kind of well-known mass shooters in the United States over time, and how many of those, quote-unquote, had been diagnosed with a mental illness prior to the event. And it's approximately 15 to 20%. Is that shocking or surprising? No. Is it shocking or surprising to then look at rates of a history of child abuse? history of drug use, history of social isolation, those rates far exceed, and actually when controlled, even in those very, very small studies, small numbers, exceed the statistics of how many mass shooters had a mental illness. And so I think that there is this high correlation between mental health and violence in general, and that has a broader epidemiology. And that literally does a bit more to show that Mental illness does not cause violence more broadly. So, this is just anything from people with mild to moderate mental illnesses compared to the general population. And I think that's critical. And what that tells me, as not just a doctor, but a human, is that in our general population, we have mental health problems, that this is not exclusive to a subset of people that are prone to fill in the blank violence, gun shootings, mass murders. So, I say all of that because this is something that it just irks me i'm sure it irks you and it seems so convenient and i think part of it i've i've had to try to sit back and try to say so i think mentally as people we need to be able to attach some sort of abnormality or anomaly to these mass shooters because they can't just by conception of what they've done they cannot be like us they must be therefore something is so fundamentally broken And because of the stigmatization of mental illness, not just our culture, but many cultures around the world, that therefore broken is attributed to mental health. And it also offers Governor Abbott, for example, an incredibly convenient excuse to say, we're going to fortify schools. Governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, we're going to spend $100 million into ammunitions training for our teachers and on mental health. But it absolutely avoids the problem that we just have too many guns in this country. Norm, your thoughts?
0: So, I mean, there's so many areas here that leave me seething. First, getting back to a couple of the points you were making, young people dying by guns is a problem at this point largely of suicide. And what we know is so many young people who have been bullied or who have issues, sometimes impulsively, Will attempt suicide. And we know from uh, huge numbers of cases that those who fail say, Oh my God, I really didn't want to do that. I didn't mean to do that. If you're doing something impulsively, but you do it with a gun, there is a much greater likelihood you're going to succeed. And so having all of these guns around adds to the problem of suicide among young people. That's one thing. A second point is we know that people with mental illness are far more likely to be victims of violence than they are to be perpetrators of violence. The third point is that when we see these horrible incidents of mass shootings involving somebody with a serious mental illness, take for example, the Parkland case or the case of Gabby Giffords. These are people with untreated serious mental illness And we know from both of those examples that family members tried repeatedly to get some kind of treatment, including the wraparound services necessary to get them treated and stabilized. And our system is so broken that they were unable to see anything happen that could have helped. There is a problem with a broken mental health system, but this is an excuse now that the supporters of an unfettered access to weapons of mass destruction out there are using, and the most powerful evidence that this is a red herring is we just have to look at other countries, comparable countries, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, all the European countries. They all have serious mental illness. There is no reason to believe that their relative incidence of those with serious mental illness is significantly different from ours. But guess what? They don't have mass shootings of this sort. What's the difference? The difference is access to these guns and especially to these AR-15s and comparable ones with huge magazines and the access to destructive bullets.
1: To your point about victimization, I worry so much that even whether it's Democrats or Republicans as they're trying to think about congressional solutions, you know, Chris Murphy and John Cornyn on the Senate side trying to lead this, quote, bipartisan solutions to this. It just, it's, it's a very convenient blaming mental illness and, and therefore, to your point, even kind of the appropriate like identification that more likely to be victims you know substance use social isolation actually even a track record of extremist beliefs of different kinds have all been better predictors but basically by blaming mental illness it conceals everything rather than revealing everything it just does an incredible job of painting this opaque blanket over all of this and i think it goes without saying that these two things can be true we have an incredibly broken mental health care system. And we really do need to address mental health. And we have you know, way too many guns and too much gun violence. Those two things are true, true, not related to the way that people want. One of the kind of proposals being floated around what has been known as red flag laws. When you look at a state like California, which has actually had a registry, a statewide registry, and the ability for Law enforcement, as well as um, family and household members, to be able to kind of flag and report concerning relatives, family members, citizens, people who live at a certain address that they're concerned about their ownership of a firearm for any a number of reasons, domestic violence, et cetera, that the courts and the system with which the courts then issue kind of these protective orders and then the actual physical acts of law enforcement or somebody exercising those protective orders has been so backlogged and that many local law enforcement officials are not even aware kind of your typical left hand not speaking to the right hand. So even if we were to have, I think, outside 19 states in the District of Columbia, which have some of these red flag laws on the books, implement, quote unquote, a more universal kind of red flag law, which does point to people who might have had a track record of previous psychotic breaks so severe mental illness with a, with a firearm and they are raised as concerning. We still have a lot more to do. And, and then it begs the question, well, why do we have such easy access to guns at all? Period. So we keep looking for these patchwork, convenient ways to avoid the exact problem that we keep coming back to. So I think, uh, people want for there to be a convenient way to explain the inexplicable when you see kind of these again, less than 1% of shootings that fall into this mass shooting category that people think of as evil, which I think is very appropriate that that's how people label it. But it does not actually reflect the conversation that we need to have. So I, and I want to point out the Dicky. I won't let this one go, because even though we have said that, uh, quote unquote, the CDC can conduct research looking into the epidemic of gun violence and only $25 million going to that compared to literally yearly billions of dollars that we dedicate to things that have a much lower ranking on causes of death. I think that that alone is something where I've been disappointed that the Biden administration has not exerted a lot more control. They've put in new people to lead our Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, new people to lead kind of ATF. We have quote unquote pieces in place But if you have no funding, what we've done is we've neglected to generate an entire field of gun violence, public health researchers, by not allowing for there to be tracks of funding that facilitate faculty, that facilitate. And what we depended upon now are Michael Bloomberg funding spots at public health schools around the country, philanthropy having to fill the void, but nowhere near kind of what could be done if you actually had reliable federal funding, but then also a very clear assessment. We have institutes, and then I'll get off my perch so that we can talk about another aspect with our members. We have dedicated entire institutes to heart disease, to kidney disease, all appropriately so. What more do we need to do to argue that we need a National Institute on Gun Violence? I can't think of any better examples, numbers, statistics, lack of data, lack of understanding of the effectiveness of interventions. So you'll hear it here on Words Matter First, that uh, not only do we have a lot more to do with COVID, but I just can't imagine how to make a stronger example for a National Institute of Gun Violence that's funded and federally funded in perpetuity by our government.
0: And something that actually Biden might be able to do by executive order or executive action There's a lot more to talk about. I'll make one last point before we move on to our members, and that is the impact of tribalism in all of this. You know, if you go back to when the assault weapons ban was instituted, most police departments in the country wanted significant gun control. They were the ones affected by the access to uh, guns that had been unregistered, to cop killer bullets to these mass destructive weapons that were used by criminals against them, now police unions across the country, which have become more tribal, are opposed to a lot of these actions. And that's another one of the pernicious effects of what's happened to our politics more generally. We'll be coming back to this issue, I'm sure. We wanna thank those of you who joined us It would really be helpful as we relaunch this show. Words Matter was uh, really a powerful podcast. We're so happy to be back and doing this together. It would be so helpful if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this feed on your favorite podcast player. We'd like you to share this episode with your friends on social media. And if you liked it and want even more of our conversation, become a member of the DSR Network. Get a bonus segment where we talk about what comes next in the fight against gun violence. Words Matter is a production of the DSR Network. The executive producer of the DSR Network is Chris Cotnor, and the producer of Words Matter is Brad Haver. The next episode of Words Matter will be in your podcast feeds on June 17th. See you then.